Welcome, Mr. Lloyd. Uh, I want to thank you for coming in uh, for this interview with the CAA Director of Movie Marketing. I, I have to say, with your 20-year background in aerospace, I was surprised that you wanted to come out to Hollywood and do marketing materials in film, but uh, it's a bold choice, and we thought we would reward that with an interview. But uh, first, we want, to, we want to have you try out a couple of things. So I uh, want to have you come up with some taglines for, for films. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, Alien, they said, uh, in space, no one can hear you scream. Right, that was a that was a famous one, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a big one. And then uh, Terminator Two was uh, the battle for tomorrow has begun. So uh, so we're gonna have you we're gonna have you do some. Uh, we're gonna have we're gonna do, let's try like uh, six of them. Let's uh, so uh, first. Uh, so I want you to as soon as I tell you the name of the film, I want you to uh, quickly come up with a with a tagline for that film. So let's let's start with an easy one. How about uh, Blade Runner? Blade Runner. Uh... Oh gosh! Do androids dream of electric sheep? Yeah, that 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 would sure that sure, a good sure. good reference back to Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Uh, Predator. Predator, get to the chopper. Nice. Oh, that's great. Great. Uh, fifth element. Fifth element. Uh, oh gosh. Um, tagline for the fifth element. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is Lilo Dallas Multipass. Yeah, there we go. Which, you know, uh, uh, once people see the film, yeah, they'll understand. Yeah, get it. All right, uh, uh, sex lies in videotape. Um, oh gosh, I have not seen that film, so uh, I got I got nothing. Oh, it's uh, really four people sitting around talking. Four people sitting around talking. That's your tagline. All right, uh, my dinner with Andre. Dinner with Andre. Also, have never seen this one, but uh, I'm sure the audience will find it riveting. Uh, two people sitting around uh, having dinner. Uh, and last but not least, Solaris. Solaris. Uh, George Clooney in space. And scene. Welcome to the Monty Hall Effect podcast. My name is Tola Martz, and with me here is Tim Lloyd. Hello. Welcome. And tonight, uh, you are in for a treat. We are going to talk about my favorite film of all time, which is, it's dangerous to talk about somebody's favorite film because, um, you know, I will try to not just go down rabbit holes of monologuing as to why I love this film so much. It's It can be hard to have a uh, cinematic distance from a film, especially when it's a film that not everyone loves. I have friends that hate this film and uh, and are bitter that I ever recommended it to them. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll try to dive into it and talk a little bit about uh, why I enjoy it and what Tim thought of it and... Uh, and so on and so forth. You're clearly setting me up for success in that in that uh, we're here to talk about your favorite film of all time. Um, but you know, if if uh, if you don't have movies that make people mad that uh, that you ask them to watch it, uh, you know, what are friends for, really? Um, exactly for, right. For the record, this is not the film that Tola uh, 
th- there is a film that Tola uh, recommended to me that I am mad that he recommended. This is not it. <laughs> we might we might cover uh, that film later in, in our series. Ooh, good. Let's keep it. Uh, let's let's keep it secret for now. Uh-huh. All right. This is uh, a film that is based on a Stanislaw Lem novel, uh, which I have not read, uh, and was filmed by uh, a great Russian uh, director, uh, Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky. Uh, uh, yes. Tarkovsky. Uh, long, long film. Um, the the remake, so we're going to be talking about the remake, which was directed by Steven Soderbergh in 2003, I believe. And uh, in our bit that we started off with, I wanted to experiment with the idea of how do you how do you build marketing around a film that just has lots of talking, like Sex Lies, or Vide- Sex Lies and Videotape or My Dinner with Andre? Because Solaris does have a lot of that. It has a lot of talking. It's primarily talking. It's talking in pretty places, and there's a there's a few action things. Although almost all the action I was thinking about this happens off screen. So not only is there lots of talking, uh, but uh, the few things that actually do happen that advance the plot mostly happen off screen, uh, thus thwarting the uh, uh, viewers' urge to uh, uh, see interesting things on screen. You know, uh, they did. Uh, I went and looked. I said, how did they, how did they try to market this film? And uh, I found. Uh, a tra- a uh, poster that said from the filmmaker that brought you the abyss. Okay. Which not a universally loved film, uh, but sure. Uh, it's in the, it's in the Cameron Canon and the Academy Academy award-winning director of traffic, which yes, Steven Soberg did direct traffic traffic and Solaris do not have a lot of overlap. I will tell you. No, they do not. Um, and the, uh, the tagline was how far will you go for a second chance? which sounds like a rom-com. It sounds like a movie that should have like, uh, oh, Sandra Bullock and... Uh, Billy Crystal, you know, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Right? How, how far, you know, with a feel-good trailer yeah, and all that kind yeah. of stuff, which is, which is also not this film. So they, they had a really hard time with this. Um, you know, they spent some money on it. Uh, they got George Clooney at sort of the height of his... Uh, you know, fame, or actually, actually, I said fairly early in his fame. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they just didn't know what to do with it. And they tried to market it. And uh, it, it was really an art house film. And they tried to market it to a general sci fi audience. And uh, it did not, that, that, that was part of the problem, right? It was not the movie people expected to see. Anybody who knew the plot of Solaris would, would know that it had been mismarketed. But for a general audience, uh, they just didn't, uh, they didn't know what the hell they were going to get. And that's, and that's, I think, a good point, which is anyone who knew the film, the, the plot of, of Solaris uh, was either uh, a, a giant uh, a giant Stanislaw Lem nerd, um, of which uh, you know, there, there are a few folks out there, um, uh, uh, and or a, uh, a giant Andrei Tarkovsky uh, film nerd, which, which again, like, you know, those folks are out there, but they're not, they're not the ones really driving the box office. No, they're not the same people that went to see George Clooney and, you know, Batman and Robin, for instance, right? Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> no, I think they were. I think that was the problem. Yeah, right? well, yeah. I think this was probably the next major film uh, from Clooney after that Batman film. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> were people in for a rude surprise if uh, if somehow they enjoyed Batman and Robin. Uh, first of all, I, I kind of question uh, where they're coming from if they enjoyed Batman and Robin, but then the... Uh, 
you know, this is a very different film. Yes, uh, Ocean's Eleven is is what um, what uh, both Clooney and Soderbergh came from uh, right before this movie. Oh, okay. So you know, if you're right. expecting another Ocean's Eleven, boy howdy, you've got <laughs> something coming. Yeah, yeah, it was quite far from Ocean's Eleven as well, because um, they stripped away this the George Clooney's character in this movie. Um, is a very thoughtful and cerebral person, but he has pretty much none of the charm of his uh, character from Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Danny, Danny Ocean. Oh, I can't remember. Danny. Oh, of course, Danny the, Ocean. The titular that's, Ocean. Yeah. Uh, yeah he does. He does right. have. He does have the smoldering uh, Clooney thing that he does, um, which is which is pretty much the entire courting scene uh, between himself and uh, and uh, Natasha McElhone. Um, it's just them sort of smoldering at each other, which I think works pretty well. There is, there is a great, there is a great beat cue, but we'll, 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 we'll get to that. Yeah. So where to start? Uh, there's, yeah. there's a guy whose name is Chris Kelvin and he's living in a place that looks a lot like Seattle, actually. It's sort of raining all the time and dark. It, it struck, uh, it struck me as a, as a, uh, an almost Blade Runner ish kind of like future world sure. with the rain and the public transit and more rain and the sort of like it's kind of sometime in the future maybe probably yeah it could be it could be in the same universe uh if, if somebody told me that it was written by the same author and in the same universe as blade runner i could accept that mm -hmm. but but it's not it's uh it's a different universe and uh, first off, I have to say, right at the beginning of this film, you are introduced to an amazing, amazing score. One of the reasons why I like this movie so much is a uh, uh, film... Uh, what's the term for somebody who writes scores for, for movies? Is there a term for that? Uh, composer. Composer, yeah, yeah. I guess. Uh, Cliff Martinez, who has worked, had worked with Soderbergh many times, had worked on Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and traffic and later worked on contagion um and uh just it's a wonderful soundtrack and uh i you know recently uh, I, I saw a thing on youtube or not youtube uh facebook and it said you know what albums do you consider perfect and i considered the soundtrack for solaris pretty much perfect it has a really interesting score that um is it's sort of modern classical basically which is martinez's uh yeah. And so you're introduced to this. Sorry. I, I, I do have to point out some of my some of my favorite films, actually, and some of my favorite film scores are, are by Cliff Martinez. Um, I mean, in addition to this film, uh, he he also did, um, where did it go? He also did Pump Up the Volume, um, oh, which is like a tough, a tough one to score right in between all of the, the amazing uh, songs that are on that, that album. Um, sure. As well as uh, he works with uh, Nicholas Vinding Refn a bunch. I think I pronounced that right. Um, so he did the score for Drive uh, and <gasps> the Neon Demon and Only God Forgives. Um, great stuff. And uh, and he was, I think, the original drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <gasps> I didn't know that either. I have to say, Drive is the combination of the score and the. Um, whatever the opposite of score is the, the used music or the popular music just has an insanely great yeah, the soundtrack. Uh, the music, yeah, the, the score of the, yeah, the whole soundtrack, yeah. score of the soundtrack of drive is uh, also amazingly great. Not a science fiction film. So probably won't ever uh, review it, but oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. What amazing music. Okay. So, uh, so we're introduced to this blade runner ish universe and there's this great uh, orchestral score 
And uh, pretty quickly, uh, we find out that Chris gets a knock on the door and it's some guys and they want him to go to a space station where some bad things have happened. He's a psychiatrist mm -hmm. and uh, they want him to go there and figure out what's going on and see if he can salvage the situation. And it's a, and, and there's, there's only um, a handful of, of sort of like sci-fi movie tropes or just movie tropes in general in, in this film. And this is, this is one of them, which is the, like, you're the only one who can help us. Um, right. You, you see this in, in a, in a variety of other films. As soon as you see it on screen, you recognize it. Um, but he is like, we'll, we'll learn later uh, why he is the only one who can, who can help um, just because of his, his relationship with uh, the lead scientist on board this, this vessel. But, uh, but he is, he is the only one who could do this. And there's a, but there's a vague sense of unease and menace uh, throughout this movie, really. Um, every character can be considered an unreliable narrator to some extent. And when, uh, when the guys come to his house and ask for his help and they say, you know, we all just, we all just want uh, everybody to come back safe. He says something to the effect of, is, is that what we all want? Like he's he's not confident that uh, their motives are are what they're presented to be, and this is a theme that continues throughout the movie. Every single character is, uh, to greater or lesser extents, an unreliable narrator. And uh, yeah, and one of one of the uh, dudes who knocks on his door is John Cho in a in a very small role here. <gasps> Really? Yeah. Yes. The amazing. AKA uh, Mr. Sulu. Mr. Sulu, and uh, or or some of our other listeners might know him as as Harold from Harold and Kamar. Well, there we go. But uh, was he also not an? Was he not also an advisor to the uh, Obama administration? Wasn't he? Didn't he have a role in the Obama administration at one point? Uh, I think that was that was uh, Kumar. Um, oh, that was Cal Penn. Was it? That was the other stoner. Oh, it was Cal Penn. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> the other, Oops. All right. the other stoner. Uh, it was Cal Penn. Yes, right. not a stoner. Not a stoner role for John Cho here. No. Nope. Uh, so, and then it pretty much immediately cuts to a spaceship in orbit around a thing. It's so much of this film is hard to describe because. The special effects are are really beautiful, but you don't necessarily know what you're looking at. So there is a spaceship, and it's very gorgeously designed. And there's a a, a a you know sort of flight pod that comes off of what's clearly the faster than light drive, and it then approaches the space station, which is also beautifully filmed. And the space station is in orbit around this thing, and it's just it's a glowing thing with light tendrils that come off of it. I mean, it's, it's extremely hard to describe, but extremely gorgeous. And in fact, it was my uh, screensaver for my phone for a long time. Cause I just find the, I find the image mesmerizing and they come back to it on a regular basis because it, it's a ever changing design. Mm, yes. The streamers change. Yes. And the colors change uh, throughout the course of the film, um, which is, which is interesting. Um, I'll do, I'll do my best to describe it for perhaps listeners of a very specific age range um which is if you ever had a plasma screensaver on your computer on your windows computer uh it looks exactly like that oh yeah sure that's a good that's a good comparison yep 
so, so this space station is in orbit around this planet that has all sorts of weird energy coming off of it. I mean, some of the light tendrils also look vaguely like uh, the not the sunspots. What are they called? The like, the arcs of yeah, plasma. Like, yeah, that like come prominences. Off the Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Solar prominences. And they come back and they touch the surface of the planet and there's light. Uh, you know, there's there's incandescent things where they come back and touch the surface and you really have no idea what's going on with the planet. At do, all. do they ever actually refer to this as a planet? I was trying to remember because it's, it's called Solaris. They refer to it right? as Solaris. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's possible that they didn't. It's possible they just call it Solaris and yeah. they leave it unclear as to whether it's a planet or a I don't know what else it would be if it wasn't a planet. Right. I mean, as we watch the film, we learn that you know maybe it isn't a planet, or if it is, it's, it's maybe a planet-sized living something, uh, or a, right. or a god perhaps, or a. I mean, the, yeah. The whole the whole point of the film is that it's uh, it's unknowable, uh, right? Right. So yeah, I'll have to huh, I'll have to look into that more and see if they ever actually called it a planet. I I don't think so. So so Kelvin, uh, his little. Uh, personal pod or whatever comes off of the faster than light chip and it uh, travels over to the space station and it docks in the space station. He gets out into the space station and there's a fairly long sequence before he meets anybody on board where he's just walking around and the spaceship is very, very cold looking. Um, I think it's a very realistic looking spaceship. Um, but it's it's very cold. Everything is in sort of blues and grays, right? Yeah, it's um, right. So when when you sort of choose a design for a space station in a in a sci-fi film, right? You, you you know you could have something that's sort of dark and menacing. You could have something that's sort of a big big and open plan, or something that's more um, you know filled with light and and life and and growing things. Um, and and this is this is very clinical. Uh, it's it's a very sort of yeah like an you know, industrial but like like clean clean clinical kind of industrial lots of graded floors multiple levels uh but it, but never mm-hmm. never too claustrophobic but never too open either you're right right but but uh but but a nice job from design wise so and then he does he see what what's the first living thing that he sees Oh gosh, the first living thing. Oh, let's see. Might be, might um, be the kid running, running through the hall. Yeah, I think, I think the kid shows up after he talks to the two crew members. So the first, the first, okay. the first people he sees are dead. Um, right. He finds, he finds his way. Oh right. Um, he, in this long sequence. Um, it's interesting that that you recall the film as as having a lot of dialogue, a very dialogue heavy film, but it also has these really long stretches of absolutely no talking whatsoever, um, which which is which really like I mean atmospheric can be used over and over again to describe this movie, um, but it is very atmospheric, right? It's like he doesn't doesn't bother to take off his his spacesuit, like his helmet's off, but he's he's just walking around in his spacesuit, like figuring out just like something's weird, and he's he's gonna figure it out, and so he finds he finds what I guess is the morgue, probably a makeshift morgue, um, just a, a, a refrigerated room that's got two dead bodies in it. And uh, one of them is his friend, uh, Dr. Uh, Jabarian, was his name, um, the one who asked him to come to the station. And he's dead. Yeah, I should back up a step. The, the, when he's back, when he's still back on Earth, uh, the vaguely menacing characters that include John Cho that come to talk to him 
show him a video that says uh, that's from this uh, Dr. Gabarian. Gabarian, yeah, Gabarian. Yeah. yeah, saying, "Chris, please come to Solaris. Uh, I can't, I can't really tell you what's going on, but you, you need to come here. Uh, sort of, I need your help, basically." And then, yeah, he gets there, and uh, Jabarian is dead, along with somebody else. Yeah. And uh, so, and then shortly thereafter, right, he meets uh, the two other crew members um, who are who are still alive. The first one um, is uh, what's his name, Snow. Uh, right. Not uh, not the rapper, but uh, just a guy named Snow, played by Jeremy Davies in perhaps the most Jeremy Davies role of Jeremy Davies' career. I, I, right. I absolutely if, if you like Jeremy this. Davies, yeah, if you like Jeremy Davies, you'll love him in this movie. Oh my God, he's amazing. Yeah, I, I just, I just like uh, this was the second time I watched this movie. Um, I think the first time I thought I saw it in the theater, and as soon as I remembered, as soon as he popped on screen, I was like, Oh my God, Jeremy Davies as Jeremy Davies, it's fantastic. And he has a great line, which is, "I could tell you what's going on, but it wouldn't tell you what's going on." Yes. Which is like, <laughs> what? Uh, but it eventually makes sense. Yes. Uh, so and, he, yeah. he speaks very elliptically, and uh, Kelvin doesn't get a lot of useful information out of Davies, I would say. And very... Um, or Snow, rather. Yeah, very detached, too, right? Like, a lot of... Uh, he, he doesn't he doesn't respond emotionally to anything. Right. Uh, that's and and boy, there's a lot of stuff to respond to emotionally in this in this movie. But he's whatever it is, he's he's engaging it on probably a purely intellectual level, but maybe also completely disconnected from it. Maybe we'll learn more about that later. Right. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, related to th- relating to things very very emotionally, uh, is Viola Davis, and I think one of her first screen performances. Uh, I'm I was looking up. Uh, on the internet and she may have had films before then but she didn't have anything famous before that so this was uh this was an early film and uh she is very unhappy she is in a room she openly opens the door a little bit uh she is clearly uh scared of something that's going on inside the ship uh there's something that she doesn't like and uh she views kelvin with uh, hostility and suspicion. And uh, so he also doesn't get a lot of useful information out of her, right? Right. She's, uh, yeah, sort of hiding uh, from pretty much everything. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you're right. She's, uh, this was a pretty, pretty sm- yeah, pretty early on in her film career. Um, and since then, obviously, uh, I think, what was, what was the thing that really jumped out to me from her? Wikipedia. Uh, yeah, she is. Uh, she's the only African American to achieve the triple crown of acting. Uh, so mm-hmm. she uh, she has what is that? The Emmy, the Tony, and the Oscar. Uh, nice. Which is like, yeah, she's amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, I think she's a little under and, and underused she's great in this movie. movie. Yeah, but like, yeah, she is. Uh, her her character is is great. And then I, I guess rounding out the cast, it's it's an interesting cast too. Um, uh, and we'll get to. We'll get to his wife Rhea here in a minute. It's interesting that like we have such these these huge stars, right? Um, you know, George Clooney and, and I guess Viola Davis wasn't huge at the time, as you're saying. Um, Jeremy Davies is fantastic, and then like and Natasha McElhinney as 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 Rhea, and then Jabarian is this like total unknown, 
uh, his, right. the actor's name is Ulrich Tukur, a German actor who doesn't hasn't been in a lot of uh, English language films. No, it says he's a musician too. I think I might have something of his in in, uh, uh, in Spotify, but anyhow, or yeah, Spotify is that what? No, no, that's the Spotify. Yeah, Spotify. What do you, what, are, what do the kids listen to these days? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, he, so uh, yeah, sorry. So yeah, so he's met he's met the two remaining live uh, crew members. Sees a young a little kid running through the station, which. Uh, Okay, now it's gotten even even creepier. Super weird. Yep. And then is this where he first? At some point, he he lies down and takes a nap. Right. Yeah. 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 After right. after Jeremy Davies tells him uh, it's probably a good idea to sleep with the door locked. Right. Yeah. Which is uh, turns out is entirely useless. <laughs> right. Uh, like like several of the things Jamie, J- uh, Jeremy Davies says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, his first dream is about Gilbarian, right? Gilbarian? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and and Gilbarian comes in and talks to him. And basically, Chris says, why did you kill yourself? And uh, Gilbarian says, uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but now I'm not so sure. Which is a great line. Mm-hmm. But we're still really no cl- closer to understanding what's going on at this point, right? Right, and and I love the. I think shortly after that, the I really love the way that the the dream sequence kind of plays out, right? So we know that we, he's gone to bed, right? So right. he's probably dreaming. Uh, but the way that it's sort of like played out is is it's you know is is it a dream? Is it a memory? Are we flashbacking? Is there? Is this actually happening? Right. Has Solaris taken him into his past? And, and it's as he's dreaming, it's it's made, uh, I think, it pretty pretty unclear to the audience at this point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, he has a memory of Gibarian, right? I think at a party or something like that. And then and then in in this state, in this sort of hazy, semi asleep, semi wake state, um, he talks to Gibarian in his room, right? And then he he wakes up properly and Gabarian's not there. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes back. Does he go back to sleep at that point? Um, at some point he's sleeping again, and he has a dream about uh, meeting his wife, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a woman named Rhea, who's p- played by, as you said, Natasha McElhone. Is that how it's pronounced? Something like that. McElhone. Let's go with let's go with McElhone. that. She's She's British. Yes. We'll, we'll, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce that Britishly. Right. Which is a word. Um, and uh, long story short, uh, it's so it's all about their meet cute. And there's a there's a wonderful that the, there's this a super smoldering scene where they meet on a train, and uh, you know she says something to the effect of like. Oh, actually, no. They meet at a party, and then they meet again on a train. Right? Uh, other way around. They meet on the train and don't talk. They just sort of smolder at each right. other on the train. Right. And then they and then he sees her again at a party at at, at what looks like Gabarian's house. Yeah. Right. And and he walks up to talk to her, and she says, "Don't blow it," <laughs> which is such a which is such a great uh-huh. such a great line. Oh my goodness. Uh, 
I, I wish Tracy and I had had such a meet cute uh, uh, first conversation, but nope, I'm not, and I'm not George Clooney. So, uh, but then there's this whole thing with, uh, is it Dylan Thomas? Dylan Thomas, yes, uh, yeah. Um, so he quote he quotes to her a single line of a, of a poem by Dylan Thomas um, to sort of like, you know, the it, it, their their interaction once they start talking to each other. Uh, is is definitely a sort of game of I don't know one-upsmanship, um, cleverness, uh, something something like that. And so his his attempt to and it works obviously. Uh, his attempt to get her attention is is this uh, Dylan Thomas line uh, and death shall have no dominion. Right. Uh, and uh, so they, anyhow they 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 flirt around and uh, so then. He is in this, you know, again, waking, uh, indeterminate state and uh, dreams of her. And then he really, truly wakes up and holy shit, she's in the room with him. Yep. Uh, She's there. And uh, without us understanding why, he is very, very surprised to see her. Uh, and we don't really know exactly why he's surprised to see, I mean, uh, uh, more so than you would even expect, uh, given that this is a fantastical place. But his reaction, you want to talk about his reaction? Yeah, and, and I guess the, the other thing about what we know at this point um, from, from first watching is we, you know, we don't know anything about her other, other than their meet cute. Uh, and there's a line at the very, very opening of the film where she says something uh, about, you know, do you still love me uh, in a, in a voiceover, uh, but we don't see her right in, in sort of the present, the present time throughout the beginning of the movie. Uh, so all, all that we right. know she's is not that, in the, she's not yeah, in the apartment with not, him when the, yeah, when... she's not in the picture at that point. Right. Um, but yeah, he is freaked out uh, that she is there. Um, she should not be there. And, um, yeah, basically, uh, he tries to leave the room. She loses it, uh, and, and basically, uh, freaks out, tells, tells him not to leave her alone. And so they sort of work their way up to making their way out of the room to go somewhere. Oh, hey, look, let's go check out this ejection pod over here. Why don't you crawl in here and check it out? Uh, uh, and then he closes the airlock on her and ejects the, uh, ejection pod. And she's kind of pounding on the on the door, like Chris, what are you doing? Yeah, like yeah, and and uh, and she's gone. Yeah, and and all and all that happens with very little dialogue. Uh, I'm I'm very expostulating. I don't think he yes. says a, I don't I don't think he says a single yeah. thing. Uh, and we're like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so what what happens next? Um. So one thing, uh, let's see here. I think what hap- Well, so what happens next um, is I think she, does he go and talk with the other uh, crew members again at that point? Um, I can't remember if he does or not. Uh, oh no, yes, he does. He does, he goes and talks to Snow, um, and Snow kind of in his way kind of fills him in on a little bit of the background by not actually filling him in on the background, but affirms that this is the, this is the thing that happens. This is, this is the, uh, the event. Fundamental. Yes. When he says, I could tell you what's happening, but it wouldn't tell you what's happening. This is the thing that is happening. People are showing up. People from your dreams are manifesting on the ship. And, 
the little kid that he saw was Gibarian's son, which I believe uh, at some point we're, we realized probably died on Earth a long time ago. Yeah, pro- probably. Although at one point I think he says your son is on Earth. Uh, and, you know, but I guess that could mean you know dead and buried on Earth, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe yeah. I just assumed his son was was dead. Maybe that maybe yeah. that wasn't uh, the case. And we never. But it's it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, well, and we we'll, we'll get we'll get to snow in a little while, but, and but we never learn what uh, what Doctor Gordon would Viola Davis. Uh, what what her visitor was, right? No, but it's interesting because you know I've read write-ups that say, oh, it's it's visions of people's loved ones come back to life. I don't think doctors, uh, uh, Doctor Gordon's visit the uh, vision was somebody that she was happy to see. <laughs> I'm going to go out on no, a limb no. and say this was not a loved one. No. This was somebody that she was having a nightmare about or a horrible dream about. And they manifested, and that's why she's so upset and so mad. And throughout the entire film, she has an incredibly hostile attitude towards these manifestations. Oh, There's yeah. nothing good that can come from these manifestations. And uh, so my read on that was, uh, you know, we all have people that we occasionally dream about that we would not be happy to see in <laughs> real life. And somebody, somebody she was not happy to see manifested. There is one uh, one scene that we see that I, I wrote down. I wrote down. I, there's just a couple of like sciencey, engineery things um, that I, I had to write down. Um, not uh-huh. not to be like that that guy, um, because it's, but because it was interesting. Whenever we see an exterior shot of this space station orbiting Solaris, it's never. Um, it's always shown at an angle uh, to the planet or to to Solaris. Okay. Um, right. We never see it orbiting. Sort of, you know, parallel with with the uh, with the limb of of the planet, uh, and we never see okay. it perpendicular. It's always off at this this weird angle, uh, uh-huh. and and to me, for some reason, that looked weird. And I'm not quite sure, like, if it just looked weird because I'm used to seeing you know pictures of the International Space Station, and it, it typically it's it it orbits with its its major axis in uh, the direction of travel. Yeah, in the direction of travel, or in per- perpendicular to the, to the limb of the Earth. Uh, as you see it from space, and I'm 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 pretty sure that what would happen over time, if there wasn't something actively controlling the station, is that it would it would kind of pick a point of equilibrium, either parallel with Solaris or um, perpendicular to it, some sort of gravity gradients where um, you know the heavier end would would end up kind of pointing towards uh, the surface of Solaris. Right, tidal tidal forces, which are uh, any object of any finite length in orbit, the, the, the two ends of the object experience slightly different orbits. Yeah. And yeah, it'll, it'll do what you're talking about, which is essentially stretch it out towards, towards the planet. Yeah. So oh, I thought that was interesting. It sort of stuck out to me. I, I don't know that it would stick out to, to many people, but um, yeah, it just kind of looked weird. But they were also on a artificial gravity portion of the ship that I think was supposed to be, it was turning, right? Or it, it was it was centrifuging, mm-hmm. basically, yeah. because I read an interview with Soderbergh where he worked out the timing of that uh, centrifuging, you know, how long it would be and what the period would have to mm-hmm. be to produce 1G. And he had his cinematographer have uh, Solaris rotate in the background to that pace. Ooh, cool. So, so he thought, so he thought through that part. So, I don't know if you if you have a centrifuge, basically like a two thousand and one style 
centrifuge, except not inside inside the discovery. Yeah. But um, the orbital mechanics of that would make it a little bit more complicated. Yeah, right? yeah, it might stabilize it in whatever kind of weird angle you set it up at. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, long story short, uh, Kelvin goes to sleep again, and uh, Rhea appears again. <laughs> this Rhea does not know about the previous Rhea. Um, and he does not say anything to this Rhea about the previous Rhea, but for whatever reason, he doesn't uh, uh, airlock this one, uh, but starts interacting with her. Yes. Yeah. And and there's a, I think for me, this kind of sets up some, some interesting dynamics in the relationship between Kelvin and, and all of the various incarnations of Rhea. Uh, right. Like it's, it's, you know, this one, it's kind of clear that she isn't fully that person, right? She'll talk in a little, in a little while. She'll talk about how she's doesn't remember anything, right? He asks her where. I think the first he asked the first one, you know, what do you remember? And she's like, well, I'm, I, was, I remember you. I remember our home, and like that's about it. Um, but right. but it, it he he does seem to have this sort of like slightly controlling relationship with her uh, in that you know. Like you say, he doesn't doesn't tell her that he's just spaced the last one, um, right. or or anything else. Uh, he doesn't, you know, find out, try to find out a heck of a lot about her other than just sort of what she remembers and what she feels. Yeah, on some level, he accepts her at face value that she's there. Yeah, right, and and doesn't try to think too hard into the behind the scenes part. In fact, there's a there's a conversation that he has with Gabarian because he keeps having conversations with dead Gabarian. And, you know, at one point he says something to the effect of like, I don't know how to figure this out or I don't know how to solve this. And Gabarian says like, if you think like that, you're going to, you're never going to leave here. You'll never leave Solaris. If yeah. You're thinking that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the quote from a little bit later in the movie is, is there are no answers, only choices. Yeah, She's which like, is a which is yeah. a wonderful quote. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's great. That's yeah. There are no answers, only choices. So uh, various things happen. Um, uh, Doctor Gordon is fundamentally hostile to these things, mm -hmm. and so uh, at one point she says, "Well, I've developed." a device that'll get rid of them. And I think it got rid of hers, right? She made hers go away yes. permanently. Yeah. Yeah. They have a little scene that uh, reminds me very much of one of those uh, ready room scenes from Star Trek, the next generation where like you get, you get the, you get the command crew together and they're, they're facing some sort of new and unknown problem. And we get one of the, one of the main characters rattles off some kind of techno babble that explains exactly the situation that's going on and the other character goes oh yeah and then what we all need to do then is just sort of create a thingamajiggy to uh, reverse the polarity and then that will make it right. go away uh, and so in in this in this case uh i think snow is like oh yeah like these are like yeah they're made out of subatomic particles and they're stabilized by a higgs field so obviously we just need to disrupt the higgs field in order to to make these things go away forever as one does, and they whipped up a Higgs field disruptor. Yes. Um, sure. And and I'm I'm trying to recall the uh, sheer amount of energy required uh, to 
to do just that. Um, and I it, wanna... it's it's enough that you can only use it every so often, and yeah, and, uh, they, yeah, you can't use it willy nilly. This was uh, yeah. So the so the Higgs the Higgs field is a subatomic uh, field uh, perpetuated by something called the Higgs boson. I'm going to get all this wrong. If anyone listening to this is a physicist, please don't write in. Um, but uh, basically, this was a thing that was recently discovered in like the early 2010s by the Large Hadron Collider uh, at at CERN in uh, um, in Europe and in Sweden, I think it is. Um, so requiring like basically all of the all of the uh, physics geniuses of uh, of Europe to figure it out and tons and tons of power uh, to 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 basically prove the existence of this particular field um, so it kind of like maybe says something about the amount of uh, power they were able to draw from Solaris which is I think if they talk about that's maybe one of the reasons why they're there um, mm-hmm. but uh, and and we'll see later that that the amount of power it takes to to disrupt this field is is substantial enough that it causes some some problems for the people on board the station later on in the in the movie. Right. Um, but yeah, so, gobbledygook, uh, uh, technobabble, Higgs field. Yeah. As all this is going on, Chris is uh, remembering, dreaming more and more about Rhea, and the 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 image it starts to turn from this meat cute that happened early on. Uh, or that we see early on, into them fighting. And her basically saying that she hates his friends and, you know, she sort of hates uh, life, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for lack, for lack yeah. of a better word. And uh, she's just a deeply unhappy person. And while that's occurring, her doppelganger on the ship is also becoming less happy. And, and remembering this probably perhaps so it's it's the way the flashbacks are kind of presented it's like is Kelvin having them is Ray having them are they both sort of experiencing these these memories together somehow I think it's supposed to be pretty clear that uh, something about the planet is taking the dreams and crafting these Mm. uh, doppelgangers out of the dreams, right? So as Chris remembers things in his dream, the, the Solaris is imbuing it into uh, the Rhea, the Rhea uh, doppelganger. Yeah. So we learn right, that she had a a pretty, pretty messed up childhood. Um, I mean, she says at one point that her mother was uh, certifiable. She had some mental health issues, um, growing up, uh, at, we there's a a whole big scene where she uh, becomes pregnant um, and and gets an abortion, and they have a big fight because he should have known that like that's what she should have that she what's what she would have done because of her terrible childhood and she doesn't want to raise children and um, can, can I can I sort of go off on their relationship for just a minute here? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, knowing that this is your your favorite movie. <laughs> Um, Uh this is um there was a lot in these kind of flashbacks especially around the abortion that Uh made it feel to me like she was like really some kind of uh almost like a manic pixie dream girl kind of character Hmm. right so when they when when they meet um she's introduced to him uh by jabarian as um 
uh, you know, I forget what the, the, the word is that he uses, but something like, oh, she's, she's, a, she's an interesting one or she's a challenge. And, and Kelvin's response is, well, maybe she needs a psychiatrist because, you know, right. Cause he is one. He's a psychiatrist. Yeah, like, Hey, well, I'm going to go fix this lady. Um, and that's, and, and kind of throughout this, right. We see the way that they interact with each other in the flashbacks, um, that, you know, there, there are parts of their life that they do talk about, right. She's very open about her history, uh, and, and kind of parts of parts that maybe he isn't listening to. Um, and, and I think especially, you know, to get to that point in their relationship, it's not really clear how many years they are together. Um, once he yeah. finally pesters her enough to, to get married. Um, but you know, the fact that she like will not have children, uh, he seems very upset and put out about, um, and in, you know, at that point in the relationship, I think he, he should have known, right. He should not have been surprised by that. Um, Well, I I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think the central, let me just get to the, what I think of as the central tenet to this film before we even finish talking about what happens in the film is, you know, we only know what we know about people. We only know what we see about people. We, even if we're good observers and we're not, um, you know, we only see the bits of people that we see, right? So if you are, if you see people at work and they are thoroughly professional at work and, uh, they do a good job at their job, then you say, Oh yeah, that Tim Lloyd, he's great. He uh, does a good job. Like maybe in your private life, you're an alcoholic or, uh, you know, have an opium addiction, right? But if I don't see that, if I don't see that part of your life, then I don't, I don't know that about you. I only know what I see. And we're all that way with everyone. All we know is what we see. And I, so I think what you're getting at is that even, you know, Kelvin doesn't even see everything that's in front of him, maybe, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't even see everything about her until, you know, maybe it's staring him in the face and she's saying that she got an abortion and uh, he's upset and she's upset that he's upset. And uh, so I, I, I don't I don't think that your assessment of it necessarily disagrees with that central tenet, right? Which is we only see what we see with people. We carry with us snapshots of people, right? I have a snap I have snapshots of you over the twenty years that you and I have been friends. I have snapshots of Tracy over the thirty five years that she and I have been together. I have snapshots of you know my uncles and aunts over the 53 years that I've known them. Um, but I, you know, but we don't really know those people. I know, I know my spouse pretty well because I've spent a lot of time with her, but I think even, I don't think anybody would say that they even know their spouses perfectly. And I think the world is full of people that, you know, I look back at, uh, just to digress for a second. Um, you know, Winston Churchill is someone that I've read a lot about. Um, I used to say he was a hero of mine. I think it's probably a little bit more complicated than that now. But uh, his wife of, you know, at the time of like 40 or 50 years had an affair on him. She went on a cruise uh, in the in the Atlantic and she met a guy and she had a brief, uh, intense uh, affair with him. And then uh, she went back to Winston and the affair was over. Uh, there's no evidence that Churchill knew about it during his lifetime. Um, but, you know, that one could argue that that was out of character and that he probably would not have had a conception of her that involved uh, her having an affair on him. But, uh, but it's, it's quite clear that she did. And so we just don't know people Mm -hmm. in the end, we don't really know people. And even, 
like I said, we're bad observers, right? We, we have confirmation bias. We tend to see the things that confirm our preconceived ideas about people. And uh, so on the best of days, uh, you know, we still don't really know people. And I think that's what this film is ultimately about, because um, as Chris remembers more and more things about Rhea and the planet learns these things about her, it makes the best effort that it can to reconstruct her uh, in that image that he saw. But maybe she wasn't as unhappy as he remembered her, right? Maybe oh, he right, remembered, right. you know, three or four bad things. He remembered a fight, you know, at a, at a restaurant. He remembered, you know, fights, a uh, fight that they had someplace else. He remembers the time of the abortion. But what if she was a fundamentally happy person, right? But he just chose to think about these things because he developed an image of her as an unhappy person. So this, is, so that's a that's a really interesting framing too, right? And and maybe it plays it plays the same for for all of his recollections, right? Maybe their meet cute was not exactly like that, right? Maybe they, right. you know, maybe they didn't make eyes at each other on on a train for twenty minutes or whatever, uh, and then have a witty repartee uh, at a at a party just like that, right? Maybe that's just how he reconstructs it in his mind right. as like, right. Oh yeah. Remember this, like this hot lady who was staring at me on the train. Um, and like, and then she saw me at the party and was like, well, I got to get with that. Uh, Cause that's, you know, how he wants to remember it. Right. And in this film, there's no objective truth, right? Okay. I mean, there's the objective truth of the camera lens on the station recording things that are happening, but like everything in the past is 100% subjective. So yes, it absolutely could have been that. And so, but at this point, yeah. she's, Sorry. Uh, there's one one last to wrap up your aside here. I think is it true, Tola, that we have made it now eight episodes into our podcast, and this is this the first time that you have talked about Winston Churchill in detail? Uh, it's possible. Wow. I, 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 I don't think I've, I've talked about Churchill and I'm not going to, I, I, today is not the day to go in depth into Winston Churchill. That's, that's fine. We'll just, uh, uh, you know, for, for our listeners, uh, see if you can spot the next time that he comes up. I, I will say the finest hour is a crap film, but that's all, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I like Gary Oldman, but, uh, the finest hour is not, uh, an accurate film of Winston Churchill. But anyhow, um, okay, so so now Rhea is screwed. The Rhea doppelganger is screwed because the planet is like, oh, she's a fundamentally unhappy person. That's what I, that's what, well, <sighs> I'm acting like the planet is thinking like a person. And that's one of the things that uh, this film, you know, if this film is about anything, you know, the first thing to me that it's about is uh, we don't really ever know anybody. We just know what the what we think about them or the images we have about them. But the other is, man, oh, man, this film is, to me, the poster child for the unknowability of an alien intelligence. For sure. Uh, yeah, right. And, and right, as we've already quoted Jabarian on this, right, you just can't, like, there's no point, right? And Snow, Snow I think, is the one who demonstrates it the most he's like there's nothing there's nothing to get there's you can't figure it out uh so he his his reaction of course is just to disconnect from from the whole thing and right and jabarian is like yeah you can't don't bother don't bother fight but this is out. this is so the opposite of star trek right uh roddenberry thought that all intelligent life would you know, care about, you know, any sufficiently advanced civilization is going to care about, you know, freedom and fairness and, uh, you know, uh, all this kind of stuff. And whatever this planet is, we never learn 
what this planet if the if 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 you can even say the planet wants anything right, right. Uh, even the concept of wanting may be unrelated to what's going on here things are happening that clearly involve an alien intelligence of some kind but we never ever get any sense of what the uh, what that intelligence is about right and yeah from basically as soon as kelvin shows up on the station right he wants to know like what does it want uh, and and as he gets deeper and deeper, he, he keeps asking, "What does it want?" And the answer is like, "That's not a question. That's irrelevant." Right. Yeah. And so, uh, but what is definitely manifesting these uh, doppelgangers and the Raya doppelganger is getting more and more unhappy. So uh, we we find out that uh, she tries to kill herself. Uh, and she actually uh, drinks liquid. She successfully kills herself. Well, sort of. Uh, she drinks liquid oxygen, right? Yeah. So this is this is my only other uh, the only other thing that I will, I will point out <laughs> um, uh, again because I think it's interesting, right? Not to be like, oh well, in this in this film didn't quite get this right. So when when you see it on screen, uh, and and again, like you were saying earlier, a lot of the action happens off screen, right? So he so when when Kelvin finds her. Uh, she's uh, she's in some lab somewhere on the station uh, on the floor, um, dead, and uh, he kind of rolls her over, and she's got uh, sort of a, a not that much sort of scarring on the side of her face, uh, but but yeah, like a big hole in her throat, um, and there's mm -hmm. this sort of greenish fizzy liquid on the floor that's sort of dripping, or is, looks like it's it's bubbling and maybe eating its way through the floor. Uh, so you see it on screen, and your first thought is like, "Oh, acid! Like she she drank acid, and that's what happened." Uh, and so later, when when he says, "Oh, she drank liquid oxygen," uh, my my response was like, "Well, liquid oxygen isn't green, uh, and it and it's mostly not going to react like that, and, and not exactly going to work like that with the human body." The main thing is the green. Like I, I could I could let everything else go, but like liquid oxygen. All right, is what like, color what color is liquid oxygen? It's blue. It's blue. Okay. Yeah, it's a very it's a very if only they had blue. if only they had made it blue. Yeah, and then it would be fine, probably. Except it wouldn't have eaten chunks out of her skin. It would have just frozen everything solid, right? Yeah, it, it just yeah, would have. Would have everything would have solidified. Every people are mostly water, and liquid oxygen is extremely cold, and uh, so uh, it would have just frozen all of her tissues. Yeah. And, it would and, have been horrifically yeah. painful. Uh, really, like honestly, terrible way to get to die. Um, yes. Yeah. Basically, freezing, freezing to death from the inside, uh, extremely quickly. Uh, bad scene all around. Um, but yeah. yeah, they could have just gone with acid, and then it would have been fine. So she's now suicidal because he remembers her that way, and she basically says something to that effect, like "I'm this way because you remember me this way," mm -hmm. uh, which is a horrible situation to be in. Um, and at this point, uh, Gordon starts saying, well, we should probably just let her go. And I think there's a, there, isn't there a point where Kelvin's like, I want to take her back to earth. And yeah. Gordon's like, absolutely not under, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, I actually like the, some of the scenes that kind of lead up to when they have this, this conversation. Um, the, I, I guess first is, is when she's sort of laid out on the table and everybody's kind of staring at her. Viola Davis says something along the lines of, I never get used to these resurrections. 
and, and <laughs> which is a great line. like what uh and then uh obviously she comes back to life and then right. um yeah at that at that point right after she says i'm suicidal because that's how you remember me um they you know the the tone of his reaction really changes for a good while um we get this sort of like sweaty almost maybe drugged out kind of uh-huh. uh activity for for a, a couple of scenes um and they have this this interesting interaction where i think she says um i didn't write down who who said what in this but i think one of them says what kind of life is this to sort right. of be here just together on this station and he's uh, oh she so she says that to him and and he says well it's what we have and uh, this is it's just this really great scene where he's sort of like curled up against the wall and his his eyes are completely in shadow and you sort of just see his face kind of lit from the side uh, and mm-hmm. it's like he he is just completely sunk into the situation he's like well screw it like this is what we got uh, I don't like it right. but it but I kind of do but it's it, it yeah it's a very like drug almost like a um, a drug movie kind of scene um, where like this mm-hmm. is this is the like you know, this is the scene from Train Spotting where he's just like, "Okay, this is terrible, but also beautiful." Well, there's also, I mean, at some point he starts taking stimulants to stay awake. Yeah, right. Yeah. I don't know if that's oh, if yeah. that's later. That's, but, about that. This, uh, is, this is where those scenes happen. Yeah, he's all sweaty yeah. and sort of having more visions and stuff. Right, and he doesn't want to be having visions because he knows it'll change her. Mm-hmm. Right, the planet will use his information basically against him. But uh, so, so Gordon is like, uh, she can't come back to Earth with us, and I've got a, I've got a way to get rid of these things. And and that's when you know. By the way, the fact that she said that you know she can't get used to these resurrections, that to me is why it's pretty clear she killed. She you know she tried to kill her uh, her vision directly again more evidence that her vision was something awful and horrible right she tried to kill it conventionally and then she had to come up with a scientific tool that would actually kill it for good which she did um so now she's basically saying we need to do this to Rhea, right Mm -hmm. and calvin's like no like we're not we're not going to do that and gordon's just aghast aghast at uh like you're not taking her back to earth like that's not that's not happening like that that's completely that would be a completely terrible idea. Like we have no idea what this uh, sentience would do on earth. Right. Yeah. And, and again, there's there, you know, nobody knows. Right. And, and her, right. Right. Her reaction is from a place of fear, right? What she, what she has experienced is awful and terrible. And uh, the, her only answer was to, to murder this thing that came to her multiple times until she figured out how to make it go away permanently. Right. So like, it doesn't matter what it wants or what it would do, uh, where it could do at earth. So, like she's against it, like whatever it is. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. It doesn't matter why. So, and she's like, Rhea wants to be dead. Let's let her be dead. Right. And that's when Kelvin is like, no, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna let her die, which is a, which is an interesting point to take. Right. Um, if you've, for whatever reason, if you've willed this thing into existence and you remember it as suicidal and it wants to die and you kind of don't let it, this is more evidence to your point that, um, you know, he, (laughs) he may not be the ideal George Clooney style protagonist in this film might not be a Danny Ocean type character. Yeah. Right. And so you, you have to wonder, right. Does he, 
does he want her to live like purely because this is this is the person who he loves does he want her to live because he spaced the first uh resurrected Rhea, whatever um does he want her to live because he misses the original one um does does he want her to live just because he wants her to live right like there's so many so many ways and again with an unreliable narrator and and various unreliable points of view we we never know uh so we have to just sort of like see what see what which is which is off a keeping with or uh of a of a of a piece with the rest of the story right we don't really know why anybody does anything all we know is what we observe about them yeah right just like him about Rhea, so we are with him in the film and people are fundamentally unknowable right and they're unknowable in this film although um gordon is actually the most uh uh traditionally knowable character in this film i would say yeah her <laughs> right her actions and statements are are like they all hang together um yeah they're they, consistent they, they make and she makes sense yeah she makes a lot of sense yeah and uh she also by the way spikes things by t- t- telling Rhea about the first spaced Rhea. oh yeah yeah she's like well we're not getting anywhere so guess what <laughs> what are you gonna do pick up the right. other one along the way um, which would, you know, make for an awkward journey back to Earth. Um, but that was not her point. Her point was to make her even more uh, wanting, yeah, wanting to suicide end, end it all. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually, uh, eventually, he does fall asleep, and eventually, Doctor Gordon, who's always done what she said and said what she do, uh, kills uh, Rhea, and Rhea's gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chris is mad, but he doesn't have a lot of time uh, to uh, think about it because uh, while they are dealing with Rhea being dead, he discovers that uh, there's another dead body. There is another dead body. And uh, it, it was um, it was uh, laid out a little bit in the very first scene that he comes onto the station, right? As he, while he's walking around, there's a lot of just sort of like dried blood in various places. And so uh, if you go, if you go all the way back to the first time he went into this modified uh, cold storage room, there was some, some sort of blood on the ceiling. And this is when right. we finally, finally find, uh, you know, Chekhov's blood uh, in this right. case is uh, it turns out it's snow. Snow's been dead this whole right. time. Dun, 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 dun. So uh, Gordon and... Oh, and by the way, uh, Gordon and... Because now Kelvin is... He's going to he's gonna go home, right? Uh, now that Ray is gone, he's got nothing left to stand in the station for. So he and Gordon, among the other things they do is they turn the ship's AI back on. And it's... I love this AI because all it is is symbols. It's a computer screen and it's got various... Uh, relationship things that it's showing on a screen with ever-changing symbology that's morphing from one set of symbology to another. And that's the representation of the AI's screen. And I just thought it was a beautiful, again, the AI maybe being somewhat unknowable as well, but they turned the AI back on, which is something that the crew initially had turned off when everything started getting weird and was the reason why Solaris couldn't go back home or, or whatever, right? They had, they had turned, turned mm, the systems right, off. And right. They're going to turn the systems back on, but now they discover uh, da, 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 the original snow. So they go to talk to 
snow, snow about snow. Snow too. Yeah. It, actually, it, the, you mentioned the AI. Uh, it it uh, it really makes you wonder. Like, there's a whole piece of this story that is just not not shown, not told. Is like so. Solaris is interacting with these humans that that come into close contact with it. Like, what is this AI? Like, you know, where you know where is its intelligence level, and what is right. like, what is Solaris? What what is it doing? Right? Is it is it right? Does it does a does an AI dream of uh, um, electronic shape? Yeah, exactly. Uh, or lost loves, or um, or Jeremy Davies, or 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 what? Right. Yeah. What what was what was Solaris's interaction with the AI? I'll yeah. we'll never know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you know, what's what's better than one one Jeremy Davies uh, playing it to the hilt? Uh, is, is it turns out there were two Jeremy Davies the the whole time. Right. Uh, and and what is what is it? What does he do when he when he meets himself? Is he tries to kill the other guy? Uh, and yep. Turns out the replicant uh, is the one who wins, survives somehow. Yeah, he has this great monologue where he talks about basically being winked into existence. And the first thing he sees is him, and the him that he sees is trying to kill him. <laughs> so he fights back, and he kills the original him, and he stuffs the original him up in the up in the uh, up in the up in the ceiling overhead rafters. rafters right? Yeah. And so Gordon and Calvin are trying to figure out what to do with Snow, and then Snow basically says, uh, "I don't think you're going to have to worry about it, gang." And they're like. <laughs> Uh, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Remember all that thing about the the Higgs field and how much energy it took to uh, to disrupt it to get rid of those visitor creatures. Uh, turns out you you used up too much of the ship's fuel, so you can't right. go home. And and ever since they got rid of Rhea, the planet has been exponentially increasing its mass. Which is uh, to your earlier point about what the hell is Solaris. Um, you know, most things cannot uh, just create mass uh, for themselves uh, out of nowhere, but Solaris evidently can, and it's getting more massive, and uh, the ship's not going to be able to leave. Anyhow, it's it's pulling the space station in towards the towards Solaris. Right. Yeah. Uh, another another reason to to think of Solaris as something that is completely unknowable right and they like they don't even bother right. to explain any of the physics behind what what it does um because what right. like nobody knows and then you know it, it it kind of doesn't matter other than physics is still physics uh at least as it affects a space station in orbit uh and right. as something grows more massive it uh becomes harder to orbit and you're just gonna eventually crash into whatever it is even if it has a surface <laughs> Yeah, although if you just increase the mass, what you're going to do, if something's in a circular orbit and you just increased the mass, all you would do is increase the orbital period? I don't think you would automatically come crashing at a given altitude. I don't know. Actually, I'd have to think about that for yeah. a second. Um, but, yeah... I guess yeah no you would because you if you had if you had a constant velocity, it, yeah, yeah yeah you would yeah you would you would, ha you would have to be pouring on more energy into your uh, into your orbit yeah, to accelerate yeah. yeah to to go faster in your orbit yeah, yeah. so yeah you you would crash in yeah. which is looks like what's gonna happen yeah. so uh, Gordon and Kelvin go to leave and then 
Gordon or Kelvin closes the airlock behind Gordon in kind of a uh, almost a homage back to when he did it to Rhea, except this time Gordon is leaving to survive, right? And Kelvin is staying behind. So he, he closes the airlock and or actually they don't show him closing the airlock, no, no, no. do they? They, they show no. him walking away from the airlock. Um so and they show her leaving though, don't they? There are two so there's two uh there's a repeat of this scene. Um the first right. time we see it, Ooh, we see right. uh we see Kelvin and Gordon going into uh this this spacecraft. Um they call it the Athena. And right. um what we what we see is 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 Gordon Viola Davis is is sitting down, getting buckled in. She's going through a pre-flight checklist. She's you know setting all the setting all the switches and flipping all the bits and stuff. Um, and he's just kind of kind of standing there in the airlock. And then the next scene that we see is he's back on Earth. Um, and, oh right. And we 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 sort of go through a little bit of his life back on Earth. We get a we get a um, a repeat of uh this scene from earlier in the movie where he he pulls some vegetables out of his fridge uh to go in, and uh chop them up uh there is now a a picture on his fridge uh of um of Rhea um, cuz she had she had mentioned earlier that like there's there's no art there's nothing on the walls in his uh, in his apartment um which is like i don't know kind of creepy i think but um but now there is right now there's a picture on his fridge. Um, so he sort of repeats this scene. It's like, Oh, he's back in, you know, this kind of Blade Runner esque world again, everything's rainy. Um, and he, he, he talks about, uh, he has this really great line. Uh, he says, uh, how... wait, 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 okay. wait, 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 okay. don't, don't say it. Cause I, cause I want to, I want to say the entire quote okay. cause it's so great. All right. Earth. Even the word sounded strange to me now, unfamiliar. How long had I been gone? How long had I been back? Did it matter? I tried to find the rhythm of the world where I used to live. I followed the current. I was silent, attentive. I made a conscious effort to smile, nod, stand, and perform the millions of gestures that constitute life on Earth. I studied these gestures until they became reflexes again, but I was haunted by the idea that I remembered her wrong, and somehow I was wrong about everything. Is, is that the that's, is that the yes, bit that you exactly. were yeah. Yes, okay. That's, that's yeah. What fantastic. an amazing! Oh my god! 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 Yeah. So that's him back on Earth. And uh, that that uh, that piece really reminded me of. Um, have you ever read any uh, Samuel R. Delaney books? I have read a little bit. It's been a long time, though. He has a uh, one of his great great books is a is a book called Dahlgren, um, okay. which is about. Uh, it was ex- exceptionally hard to describe, um, but there's a um, there's a character in in this book that is uh, it, it takes place sort of in the mid '60s, late '60s, um, early '70s, maybe possibly. Um, but there's a character in this book who is one of the the first astronauts to go to the moon, and uh, basically spends most of his time uh, kind of drinking in bars. Um, and is, is, is probably a little bit depressed. And he, he says something at one point. He says, the earth that we left was peopled by a race that had never sent emissaries to another cosmological body. We returned to a people who had. And like that, he's, he's using that to describe just like why he feels like completely disconnected from humanity at this point. Sure, sure. Um, and so like George Clooney's kind of monologue there, like it, it, it 
it struck that same chord as like he's had this experience that was just like completely indescribable uh mm-hmm. and and like what is what does it mean to be back home like it doesn't mean anything anymore right he's untethered from this place from the people around yeah. him um and boy does he not know the half of it but it turns out <laughs> uh the second time we see uh this scene of them departing the station uh yes is the one that you described where he doesn't right. actually get on board he does not viola davis leaves and then he goes back and he actually so so things are getting weird on the station it's you know loud noises are starting to happen in the background uh the ship is starting to shake and lights are are going out and he finds a little boy mm-hmm. right and he sits down with the little boy right and does he does he put his arm around the little boy i can't remember oh it's a it's a full it's on like uh, it's a full like et kind of moments they sort of touch touch fingers almost um it's very yeah it's very long sort of drawn out tension um you know a little, little creepy because there's this ghost child who doesn't talk um right and as he's sort of collapsed on the floor and they sort of reach reach their hands out to each other um very you know like you know uh um you know sistine chapel ceiling kind of uh yeah you know, right e.t e. and elliot kind of scene um, but, but it's very much like, okay, here is, here is the moment of, um, th- this is the, this is the real moment of contact, right? Not, not right. his various interactions with the, the, the Reyes that, that popped up. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. That's how, that's how you took that. I just took it as him wanting to comfort one of the other doppelgangers that that's around, but yeah. yeah and that could, yeah. I mean, that could be, yeah, right. That's kind of how it read to me is like this, this, this child creation, um, right. The, his, his would purpose, be scared. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if he was actually a little kid, but he's not like what, you know, he's just kind of acting creepy. Um, <laughs> right. Well, he, he's a product of Gilbarian's memories. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Gilbarian is and, long and dead knows, at this point. Right. Right. So, right. What is so he's not getting doing? any more input from, yeah. From Gilbarian. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So so it gets louder and louder. The noise gets louder and louder, and clearly things are reaching a crescendo. Uh, and then he's back in his apartment on Earth. Uh, yes, with well, first he there's a he cuts his finger, and his finger regenerates the same way that Rhea regenerated after she drank the liquid oxygen, and it's it's great because they don't telegraph it with like any other movie would have just like put a really loud or orchestral crescendo to crescendo to let you know, like, Hey dummies, this is the point, right? This is the thing you need to pay attention to. And they don't do that. Right. Uh, but it's devastating anyhow. And then Rhea shows up. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and, um, what is the, Oh yeah, they have this this beautiful exchange where I think he says, "Am I alive or dead?" And she says, "Well, we don't have to think like that anymore." Yep. It's a very like and and to me this this sort of really um felt like uh 2001, right? This is this is Frank mm-hmm. Bowman um transcending to whatever. Yes. There's now a thing and it's only in some ways related to the old Chris Kelvin, 
right? It came from the old Chris Kelvin. It might even think it's the old Chris Kelvin. It's probably not the old Chris Kelvin. Um, it's it's some construct. They're living somewhere on Solaris, right? The end of the Tarkovsky has him living on an island on the surface of Solaris. Makes it more explicit that he's that he is living in a you know in a zoo. Yeah. But although in a place you can't, yeah, in a place you can't really assign a anthropomorphic zoo to it. But um, you know, the this movie makes it a little bit less clear. But you know, they're clearly somehow part of Solaris now, and it has created a version of him and it has created a version of her and they're together now. And uh, yeah. And as we, uh, as the movie closes out, um, sort of zoom out on Solaris itself. Um, so that's the, you know, maybe that's your fine kind of final establishing shot. It's like, it's like, Hey everybody, here's, here's, here's where they are. Um, right. The planet right. In case of... you somehow yeah. were confused <laughs> at this point. Right. Uh, and, and I, I wrote down, I, I didn't actually keep track of the color of Solaris over the, the course of the film, but what I seem to recollect is that when we first see it, it's very blue. And at the very uh -huh. end of the film, it's a, it's a red. Yeah. Um, I remember that too. I remember that color change. I don't know what it means. Who knows, right? None of us know what Solaris is or was or was doing or why it would be red or blue or anything. Uh, that's the film. That's there, the film. Uh, there you go. And you get the nice soundtrack, and you get uh, you close the credits, and that's that. Yeah, and uh, and Dylan Thomas, um, right? I can't remember. Did they did they read the whole thing at the end? There's some there's some point during them towards the end. They, of the they do read it. Yeah, they they do read it. And death shall have no dominion. Dead men naked, they shall be one with the man and the wind and the west moon. When their bones are picked clean and the clean bones gone, they shall have stars at elbow and foot. Though they go mad, they shall be sane. Though they sink through the sea, they shall rise again. Though lovers be lost, love shall not, and death shall have no dominion. Uh, so, though lovers be lost, love shall not. Uh, that's kind of that's kind of the end of the film. That's it right there. Yeah. Yep. And and I have to say, Rhea is not suicidal at the end of the film. I don't really know exactly what mechanism if we believe that she was created out of chris's memories and and we and we take her as being flawed because chris had flawed memories of her or selective memories of her i'm not really sure why um i've i've always enjoyed the ending of the film but i also i could accept an argument that it's a bit of a cop-out uh sort of uh and then there and then their simulacrums lived happily ever after right right yeah, um, but you know, you sort of knew, right? Like the way, the way he was kind of set up again, very much to me, like like two thousand one, um, right? This is this is the guy who can go solve the problem, and the way he solves the problem is by transcending humanity and and becoming one with this entity or or whatever it is that happens to him at the end. Um, well, Gabarian said it right, right? Gabarian said, if you keep trying to solve this, you're never going to leave Solaris. Mm -hmm. He never left Solaris, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it ended exactly as, as Gabarian predicted, right? Yeah. So so the reason this is my, uh, one of the reasons this is my favorite movie of all time is uh, it portrays, I really need to, I really need to read the book uh, because uh, I don't know if the book, portray uh, conveys this as well as the movie does but this idea of that we really don't know people this was really transformational for me in 2002 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in intellect and I'm a believer in solving things and figuring things out. And it was the first hint to me that people could be sort of unsolvable, right? And that, um, and you would think at the age of, uh, how old was I? 34. You would think at the age of 34, I, I would have already figured that out. Um, but I hadn't. And um, it really stuck with me that you can't, people, you know, people are a puzzle and it's fun to try to solve puzzles, but you can, you, you can't really solve people. Um, you can only deal with what you've seen about them and what you know about them and what they choose to share with you. Right. And it really just transformed my interactions with other people. It made me much more humble about what I know and what I don't know. I mean, there's that famous quote, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like, the quote is something to the effect of like every person that you meet is struggling with challenges that you know nothing about, right? It's or words to that effect. I I, I should find the right quote and really quote it right. But um, you know, and this movie made me realize that in a way that really, like I said, fundamentally changed how I interacted with the people after that, and and made me much more humble and realized that people are big, complicated icebergs. And I was only seeing, you know, the bit of the iceberg that was above the surface and uh, and made me much calmer about uh, accepting that uh, I couldn't I couldn't know people as well as I thought I could. Yeah, and, and I think Soderbergh, um, right, that's that's the piece of the story. I haven't I haven't read the Stanislaw story either. I probably ought to. Um, but you know that's that's the piece of the story that he that he pulled out into this film, uh, and it's it's done it's done so well. The more the more you watch it, rewatch it, and and sort of and think about the way that um, that that Kelvin's reality is presented, um, right? It just really really drives home that that story. So I find it fascinating that Stanislav Lem lived long enough to hate this movie. <laughs> And I, I don't understand why he hates it. I don't know if it's because he just, you know, loved the Tarkovsky version and this wasn't that. I mean, I, I, I so wish, I mean, I've read the article that Lem wrote about hating this film and it didn't give me enough. I mean, I think it was sort of a cranky Westerners are just shallow idiots kind of is how I vaguely recall the article. Um, you know, Westerners are shallow idiots that don't get the subtleties of, you know, Slavic literature and culture. Um, and if I'm, and if I'm misremembering it, I apologize to Mr. Lem, but it's just, it's such a fascinating movie and it makes me so sad that Lem hated it. Like this movie had enough problems without Stanislaus Lem basically rising out of his deathbed to be like, and by the way, this movie sucks, <laughs> which is what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. It, it's, I think I've probably talked about this before, um, right? Like a film, a f each each medium that a story is presented in um, sort of resets, right? The story um, uh, in and you know it doesn't have to, but I think it it it's I think it's best as an audience to sort of interact with it that way, right? So the book mm -hmm. is the book. Um, the uh, the original movie is the original movie. The Soderbergh movie is a Soderbergh movie, right? And they have they sort of take on different facets and take on different pieces of the story, um, right? Right. It's like you know you can go and and you can you can watch um, you can watch Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle, um, and that's one story. And then you can go and read the book, 
uh, behind Howl's Moving Castle, and it's a different story. Um, right. Right. You can read Fight Club and you can watch the movie, and they they are um, they have a lot in common, but they're different. Right. The things you get right. out of them are different. Uh, and well, and and fundamental to the nature of literature versus the nature of cinema is you're going to have a different artistic experience reading something uh, pages on a book versus film. I I had a I had a really wonderful debate with my mom in the early '90s about whether cinema was an art was a was a real art form or not. And her argument was something is a real art form. And this is entirely debatable, but uh, the way she defined it was uh, if something was a real art form, if it was able to convey something better than any other art form could, like uh, a sculpture of Rodin's The Thinker, right? Uh, it, it conveys something, a universality of thought and, uh, that is different than you would get in a novel about thinking. And it's different than you would get in a movie about thinking. So uh, yes, yeah, sculpture is a, is a, is a real art form, right? And so we, we talked about movies. What movies, uh, conveyed a certain thing better than the book they're based on? And, and my argument was, uh, for the book, the act, or the movie, The Accidental Tourist, uh, with John Hurt, who recently, uh, passed away. And, uh, the scene at the end where he looks at Muriel through the windshield is far better in the movie than it is in the book in conveying a, uh, sweet desperation of a man to change his life hmm. and, and the book does it fine but the movie does it better so uh you know that that is only one definition of whether something is is art or not but but uh to your point i think that you can say that a novel can will convey certain things better than a film and a film will convey certain things better than a novel right right yeah they're, and they're and they're different right they're different stories yeah, yeah, and you just get different. Um, it's a different experience as as art, right? You yeah. can't, um, all, except the Harry Potter films, which are identical to the books. <laughs> and and reading Harry Potter Potter uh, novel is essentially the same thing as uh, watching it on on screen, essentially, because they're so slavishly loyal to the books. But other than that, other than that, okay, sure. Well, and then and then in the Harry Potter books, towards the end, the books are written explicitly. I mean, they're almost screenplays, right? I mean, they're novels, but they're set up. You can tell, you can see how J.K. Rowling's like, Rowling's like, and I know how Chris Columbus will film this scene. Mm. I know how Chris Columbus will film this scene, right? And there's a there's a synergy between the books and the films that probably didn't exist anywhere else in in literature, right? Where novels are being written huge novel you know hugely popular novels being written at the exact same time that i i guess i guess the comparison would be dickens writing uh novels that he knows are going to get produced or are going to get made into theater right as he did with some of his some of his works but anyhow i digress so speaking of um different ways of telling stories um are we are we at the uh the ratings uh, for this film. Well, I, maybe before we do that, yeah. like, uh, I don't expect you to say that this was the greatest film you've ever seen. <laughs> um, but like, what what do you think in general? Like, before we try to quantify things, yeah. Uh, what, what did you think of watching this movie? Yeah. So, like I said, this is the second time that I've seen this. Um, I'm pretty sure the first time I watched it was in the theater. And, um, you know, 
seeing it a second time, it really like I like I I, I had recollections of sort of the the again the atmospherics of it. It is a very atmospheric movie. Um, but seeing it a second time and and now kind of talking through it, right? There's there's so there's so much to this movie um, that is thought-provoking and enjoyable um, and, uh, and and some fantastic performances um, and and music obviously uh, that yeah it's it's I would I would happily watch it again um, tonight if I weren't going to bed <laughs> <laughs> well good I'm, I mean I'm glad I'm glad you liked it because you and I have have friends that uh, that really didn't didn't get it and didn't enjoy <laughs> it and thought it was a, a waste of two hours of their lives so um, and and that's okay right um, we you know uh, we all we all like different things mm-hmm. but uh, yeah and I have to well okay so maybe now we can uh, let's let maybe do, do our science and fiction and film so uh, how do you think how do you think it did on the science side? Right. So this is um, I don't know, this is a little hard, um, but uh, yeah, no, I think um, I complained about two things. Um, otherwise, uh, good good space stuff in general. Um, uh, yeah, I think. I, I'll give it a maybe a seventy. Let me go seventy on this on the science. Seventy, yeah, yeah, seventy percent. Yeah, for, okay. the, for the liquid oxygen uh, stuff and for the Higgs stuff. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. I mean, I I give it eighty because I think it very wisely did not attempt to be too much of a hard sci-fi. I mean, it did not attempt to be for as much as James Cameron was a producer of the film, right? Uh, it did not attempt to put, you know, heat exchangers on the outside of the interstellar spaceship, you know, the way they did in, in Avatar and, and stuff like that. Like, I think it, it did enough science that you felt like you were on a space station, but it didn't do science for the sake of, of just showing science. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and several things happened off screen, right? Rhea getting, uh, Dis, disassembled happened off screen and uh you know davies killing himself you know killing the other version of himself happened off screen and, and uh although that wasn't partic- that wouldn't have been particularly scientific but so i, I give it 80 percent because uh i thought that the athena was gorgeous and the space station was gorgeous and the ship he arrived in which had a big toroidal what i can only assume is the is the ftl drive uh, I thought was really was was really pretty and elegant, and so I I, I give it eighty percent. Uh, fiction. Uh, fiction. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. Uh, it's an amazing story, well told, and and obviously as as we as we talked about it, it it um, elicits more discussion, right? So that's that's a fantastic way of of telling a story. So uh, I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it ninety five. Ninety-five percent. Well, since I've already said it's my favorite movie of all time, um, it will not surprise you that I gave it a, a solid hundred. Of course, um, it was just challenging to me in so many ways, and and eye-opening to me in so many ways. And like I said, it changed my life. It changed how I interact with other people. I think I think for the better. Um, so yeah, I, I gave it a full hundred percent. Uh, and then as film, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go I'm gonna have to go ninety. 
I'll go, I'll go 92. I'll go 92. I can't do 95 again, but I'll, I'll give it a 92. I mean, it's it's Soderbergh, right? It's The filming is gorgeous. Um, the planet is beautiful. The soundtrack is amazing. Um, the the casting is just, like, fantastic. Um, I did I did read somewhere that uh, I think uh, who, who is going to be the... the uh, Daniel Day-Lewis um, was, uh, was in the running. Um, to play as the original Chris Kelvin, Chris Kelvin, um, and that I, that would have been a very different movie, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would have seen yeah. that movie too. Oh, yeah. He could have, yeah. he, he could have rocked it. Oh, I'm, yeah. uh, I, I don't think Clooney's the only person who could oh, have played no, no, that no, no, character. No. Yeah. But, um, uh, but yeah, ninety ninety two, uh, just a uh, yeah, gorgeous gorgeous movie. And and as we were just talking about, right, it it takes it takes things into the realm of film that um, are best on film. Right, the way the way right. that that their that their meet cute happens, right? The way that they that they interact, the flashbacks themselves, the 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 looks on people's faces, and and the you know the lighting and the changing of colors throughout the film and all that stuff. Yeah, um, fantastic. Uh, I get so I gave it a ninety, um, and the reason I gave it a ninety was um, it certainly had amazing things in it, uh, amazing scenes and and sights. Um, you know, I've I've seen more fantastical things put to film before. Um, Blade Runner is a more fantastical film. Um, I uh, I don't know what else I would uh, put in that same level of beautiful, but it doesn't. Um, it has some very neat scenes, but I mean, it doesn't literally take my breath away, right? Like like Blade Runner mm-hmm. does, um, where it's just like, <gasps> you know, things that like you will. Uh, or, or Miyazaki, I would say Miyazaki has images that are so hauntingly beautiful. I have there's a there's a scene from uh, there's a scene from Spirited Away that I'm pretty convinced will be what I think about on my deathbed. It's such a beautiful scene. Oh. Uh, the scene where they're on the train going across the flooded train. Oh yeah, when uh, she and, and No Face are going to see uh, Zaniba. Zaniba, I think. Um, and and they're going past the flooded out train stations with the the flooded out uh, uh, farms and stuff in the distance with the clouds, and that scene is just a hundred is a hundred. So there's there's so there's nothing in Solaris that is quite like that for me, which is why I, I put it at ninety percent. Um, so so we have a total of seventy five percent on the science, ninety eight percent on the fiction, and ninety one percent on the film. All right. And, uh, and we got through this uh, by our standards fairly quickly. Uh, we're only an hour and a half in, which uh, for us is, uh, I think it's actually less than the running time of the movie. Yeah. So uh, that's, uh, that's, that's a record for us. There we go. Uh, do we want to talk at all about what's, uh, do we have an idea of what's next? Do you have a thought on what we should do next? I, uh, yeah, I think this was, I think I texted you about this one the other day. Um, I know we have a big backlog, um, of, of movies in the list. However, uh, I, I just recently watched Moonfall. Um, and, yes, 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 yes. Okay. There we go. So we'll go from, from movies that we loved to something that's going to give us a lot to talk about. Uh, Yeah. Moonfall. Nice. All right. Moonfall. Yes. Perfect. I, I look forward to it. Uh, it's uh, what's his uh, who's the main guy? Uh, main guy in Moonfall. Uh, Patrick Wilson. Yes. 
Patrick Wilson. Is he kind of a plank of wood? I mean, I feel like, have I seen him in anything that impressed me at all? Um, he's, uh, what, what, what's he, what's he done? Um, uh, I mean, he was Night Owl in, uh, in Watchmen. Oh, he was good in Night Owl. Okay. I take it back. Yes. He was, uh, he did a nice job in, in, uh, in that movie. Talk about another movie that's slavishly loyal to the source material. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, okay. Yeah. Good. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. And with that, uh, I think we're probably uh, done. And so maybe we say uh, keep watching science fiction films. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Monty Hall Effect. Our musical themes were written and performed by Guy Ellis. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions about the podcast, you can contact us at the Monty Hall Effect at gmail.com. Thanks, and keep watching science fiction films.